You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. Welcome. This week, Pastor Tom brought us a great message centered around the change-provoking power of the gospel. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. That's wordoflifeag.org. While you're there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message, so let's get right into it. Good morning, Word of Life. Great to be able to come and spend service with you. Glad that you're here. Uh, October 17th, 2011, and a very important day in the Wood household, an important day for me personally. Um, My sense of humor went from being pretty good to dad humor. I went from amateur status to seasoned professional overnight when my oldest son was born. I have a couple of jokes to share with you. Now, these are highbrow humor. Some of them are intellectual. They take some thinking. It's fine. All right, where does a snowman get the weather report? The winternet. All right, never mind, never mind. Moving on. All right, what's the snowman's favorite food? Burritos. What music do they listen to at the North Pole? Elvis Presley. Anyway, if you're wondering why on earth Megan ever fell in love with me, it's not that. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. So, I love being a pastor. I mean it. I love being a pastor. I love working for a church. Um, I love being able to do this. I love being able to work with the staff we have at the church and spend time with members of the congregation. I love preparing sermons. I truly love being able to do this. My goal as a pastor is not, has never been, and hopefully never will be, just to pack this place with people so we can all pat ourselves on the back that we gathered a large crowd. I don't want to present the message of Jesus in a way that causes people to think that coming to church once a week is the full story of this faith journey. I I don't want to present Jesus or the Holy Scriptures in a way that encourages selfishness. I don't want the sermons or the teaching in this church to be TED Talks with Bible verses sprinkled in or a self-help seminar. I don't want guilt or shame to drive people into behaving how I think they should behave or to argue with people so that they think how I think they should think. But what I want and what I believe is the heart of God is to see true life change. I want to see true gospel transformation. I want to see people becoming born again because the Holy Spirit has drawn them to repentance. I want to see people passionate, on fire for Jesus because He has changed their life. I want to see people reevaluate every area of life because their eyes and their heart have been opened. I want to see people who have found it difficult to care about others to start finding it easy and instinctive to love others as they love themselves. I want to see people driven to build the church because they want others to find what they have found. I hope and pray that our generation of Christians are more motivated and equipped to read and absorb the Bible more so than generations that have gone before us. I want this to be a community of faith that celebrates together and grieves together. I want this to be a place where true friendships are formed and each of us can meet people that we look forward to being around and find people we trust. In a world that is becoming more isolated, I want people to rediscover the joy of fellowship. 
I want people who are distant and far from God overjoyed that their relationship with Him has been healed and restored. I want people who have no concern about spiritual things to find a passion that no one can shut down. I want worship to be heartfelt, sincere, and honoring to the King of Kings. I want our church to be so Jesus-centered that it is impossible to miss. I want to see true life change. I want to see true gospel transformation. And my friends, we cannot settle for anything less. Are we going to... We're going to spend some time today in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at the moment in the life of Stephen. And Stephen was chosen and trusted to help run the feeding program, if you can kind of imagine something akin to uh, a food pantry. And he starts preaching and praying as he's running this food kitchen, and he's praying for people and starting to see miracles happen. And some of the Jewish religious leaders object to what's happening. At the time that this was all happening, there was a violent opposition to the teaching of Jesus that he is the Messiah. Many in power and authority were determined to stamp out the people who believed and trusted that Jesus was who he said he was. And in this environment, Stephen is dragged in front of the officials to explain himself. Stephen defends his faith in Jesus by leaning into the Old Testament promises about the Messiah and how they have been fulfilled in the crucified and resurrected Lord. This upsets some of his fellow Jews, specifically the leaders. And Stephen accuses them of rejecting the truth about God's Messiah. And we're picking this up in Acts 7, starting in verse 54. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Now this horrific moment is our introduction to one of the great heroes of the Bible. But it's a very strange introduction. We see a good man, Stephen, someone noble and godly who was killed because of the wave of persecution towards the followers of Jesus. As the people prepared to stone Stephen, they took off their coats, which is gruesome because presumably they were preparing for an intense workout. The subtle suggestion here is that the act of throwing stones at someone until they died was long and physically demanding for the people throwing the stones, and consequently, it would be extremely painful for the person being killed. After taking off their coats, they placed them at the feet of a young man, Saul, who approved of all this and was glad that a follower of Jesus was brutally stoned to death in public and in shame. There's some speculation about why Saul is looking after the coats, why he's watching the coats instead of joining in with the actual stoning. There's a suggestion that he's in charge or overseeing the proceedings. If he's there and his approval is worth noting, but he's not getting his hands dirty and joining in with the act of throwing the stones, it's likely that he's the ranking religious leader there who's signing off on the killing. And who is Saul? He was a young man. At this point, he's probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s. 
Paul was educated in uh, Jewish law at a well-respected institution in Jerusalem. He grew up about three, uh, 900 miles away in Tarsus in Turkey. At that point, Tarsus was a thriving city in the Roman Empire, and it allowed Saul to be a Roman citizen by birth and also to have a Roman named Paul as his Roman citizenship allowed, and that's typically how we refer to him today. And even though he was a Roman citizen, it was his Jewish heritage that defined him. He upheld the Old Testament law with pride and diligence. He had a passion to obey God. Unfortunately, that passion and zeal led to angry judgment and violence. His pedigree meant he would have been part of the religious ruling class. His Roman influence would have meant he was an expert in classical Greek and Roman culture and philosophy. Along with being both highly educated in both Judaism and the Greco-Roman wisdom, he was clearly a genius. His grasp on what he had learned had made him a highly persuasive figure and someone who could rally others to his cause. His intensity to enforce the religious law meant that he was an obvious choice to help oversee the systematic squashing of a new movement of people, a new movement declaring that some man from Nazareth called Jesus, they believed was the Messiah they were all waiting for. Saul was tasked with putting an end and stopping this Jesus movement. This was the mission Saul gladly accepted. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he goes on to tell us some of the activities of the other believers, but we pick up with Saul again in chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man named, uh, from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is indeed the son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? And this moment changed. 
Saul's life in a dramatic way. This has even become, this story that we just went through has become a common expression that we'll use today to have a Damascus Road experience. This moment is a powerful picture of someone being confronted with the error of their ways and being given a chance to repent, to think differently, to transform their heart and mind. Saul soon became more regularly known by his Roman name, Paul, and that's almost always how he's referred to of day, but following the road to Damascus conversion, the book of Acts, it starts to heavily feature Paul as a main character, and after chapter 15, the book of Acts almost exclusively focuses on the travels and ministry of Paul. But the key focus for us today is that after this moment, Paul changed. Paul changed. He met Jesus and changed. Paul had some shockingly evil traits in his life. To become who God had called him to be, he needed to unlearn and relearn a lot of things. He needed to change. And thank God he did change. Thank God the Holy Spirit inspired him to write 13 books that we have in our New Testament today. The writings of Paul adds up to an almost one quarter of the New Testament. Paul the Apostle has changed the world as much as any other person you or I could name because he was able to explain the gospel and teach people how to live with kingdom values in a way that has been heard, read, taught, and believed all over the world. An important reminder from the life of Paul, one of the true heroes of Christianity, someone that I look up to and someone I teach my kids to look up to, is a vital reminder that people can change. People can change. I am 100% of convinced of this, that people can change. People can change behavior, attitudes can shift, habits can be broken, addictions can be overcome, perspectives can change, patterns can be altered, lies can be corrected, unhealthy thinking can be healed. People who once lived in a chaotic dysfunction can rebuild a life of structure and purpose. I am absolutely convinced that this can happen. There is nothing that anyone can tell me that would make me think this is not possible. I am completely convinced that the most dramatic and shocking changes can happen in the life of a person. And the reason I am so confident, the reason why I'm convinced is because I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to set us free, not only in eternity, but also here on earth. He paid the price for our sin and is committed to cleaning us up as we live following him. The world may declare that people can't change, but the gospel declares even louder, yes, they can. The first thing I'd ask you to write down if you're in the habit of taking notes is that the gospel provokes change. The gospel provokes change. The message of Jesus is not add church to your calendar. The good news is not that church sings great songs or the British guy has great jokes. The gospel of Jesus is life-changing. This is a small part of a letter that Paul would write about 30 years after his encounter on the road to Damascus. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes, may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Paul's life changed because he met Jesus. Paul is an example to all of us. I want to spend some time today and consider together what is it that changed after Paul met Jesus? And the first thing I would say is that what changed after Paul met Jesus? Firstly, his logic. What changed after Paul met Jesus? Firstly, his logic. 
Again, from the book of Colossians, a little later on in chapter 2, in Christ lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you this so none of you will, be, will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than Christ. Paul was an influential expert in the Jewish scriptures. Paul knew all the Greco-Roman philosophy and culture and ways that all the great ideas that they had, all the literature, but he's met Jesus, and now he's rethinking all of it. In Christ lay all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense, but instead, get all this from Christ. He's changed his logic. We can see that Paul spent years, uh, some people would say as long as 14 years, rearranging his worldview. Paul took time to learn and unlearn what it means to follow Jesus. If you can imagine rebuilding a house, I thought of this as I was actually getting ready this morning. I was just sat at my kitchen table and I thought, you know, if I decided that we wanted to rebuild the house completely and we wanted to take the house apart piece by piece, if we were to do that, there'd be some parts of the house we'd have to throw away. If we took the house completely and just leveled it and just took all the pieces of the house, some of it would have to be thrown away. We couldn't reuse the drywall, for instance. Other parts of the house we'd be able to reuse. And so as we're part of constructing a new house, we'd be able to reuse some of what we already knew, but we'd have to supplement with new materials. We'd also definitely have to build a new foundation. And when we'd finished this rebuilding, there's absolutely 100% chance that the new house would look different than the old house. We had to take the old house apart. Some things, some of the materials would have to be discarded and thrown away. Other parts were okay, we could reuse those. Maybe they had a different function than they had before. Maybe they could be reused in some way. That is a, an idea that came around this morning, and of course it's an incomplete picture, but it was an idea of this is how Paul's thinking was. He had to undo the worldview that he had. The framework that he had in his mind, his mental framework, it had to be taken apart, it had to be disassembled. And as it was rebuilt back together, his understanding of the Old Testament, some of it was able to be repurposed. Some of it was exactly where it needed to be, and Paul was able to use that. And he also needed to have a completely new way of thinking about certain things. And Paul had to unlearn and relearn what it means to go through life, what world it really means. And Paul changed his logic. And the second thing, what changed after Paul met Jesus? Secondly, his emotions. What changed after Paul met Jesus? Secondly, his emotions. From 1 Corinthians, while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. From the book of Titus, please give my greetings to the believers, all who love us. May God's grace be with you all. From the book of Acts, this is um, Luke capturing something that Paul was saying. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears for you. From the book of Ephesians, peace be with you, dear brothers and sisters, and may God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, give you love with faithfulness. Now, my friends, let's not forget what was happening when Paul first met Jesus, he was on his way to murder and imprison Christians. He was on a mission to destroy churches. This is a man that was driven by hate and anger. 
And now he's talking about watching over a church day and night and crying many tears for them. Now he's praying for peace and grace for the believers. He's preaching that love will strengthen the church, that he's dearly loved by believers all over the world. This is a wild and crazy conversion. Not only is his logic and mental reasoning changed, but also his emotions. The man who was driven by anger and wanting to destroy the church is now madly in love with God's people. He has a heart and a compassion for them. He cries for them when they need crying for. He's on their mind day and night is what we just read. What a transformation, not only in his mental thinking, but also in his emotions. Thirdly, what changed after Paul met Jesus? His priorities. His priorities. He wrote this to the, book, uh, the church in Philippi. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now... I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became righteous through faith in Christ. Now, what would this change mean for us? For Paul, it meant completely shifting around his religious beliefs, his understanding of Scripture, his understanding of eternity and human relationships, and his understanding about the character of God. In this passage, he outlines how his confidence in his own religious obedience was so important that for so long, but now he sees it's all garbage compared to knowing Christ. And what about us? What does it mean for us to have a change of priorities? For me, when I became a Christian, it meant not hitting the clubs and being consumed with what my group of mates thought. For me, it meant not wearing myself out so that I could fit in with the crowd. And what about you? What's the garbage that you treat like gold? What's the trash that you treat like treasure? What are the priorities that need to change? We're going to the fourth point. What changed after Paul met Jesus, number four, his purpose. His purpose changed. Now, there's many different ways the academics and the experts would answer the question of what is Paul's purpose in life. Throughout his letters and following Paul's life in the book of Acts, we see that Paul would go and start churches all over the Roman Empire teaching people the good news of Jesus. He would then provide support and leadership to those churches while he set off to start a new church in a new city. In essence, Paul is building what he previously committed to tear down. Paul has changed from someone who served God with anger to serving God with love. And it's not a coincidence that when Paul served God with anger, he treated people with anger. But when he started serving God with love, he started treating people with love and concern and care. Paul summarizes his purpose and his motives in the book of Colossians. In verse 28, chapter 1. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. 
We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. This is why we do this. This is my motive. This is what drives me. This is why I keep doing this, even though it's difficult. For Paul, even though there was prison, death threats, riots, verse 28 again, we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. The motive and purpose couldn't be any more different than when we first see Paul overseeing and approving the killing of Stephen. The fifth thing, what changed after Paul met Jesus? Number five, his reputation. His reputation. The people who respected Paul and looked up to him now despised him. The people who sought his wisdom and his advice were now trying to kill him for being a Christian. Those who thought Paul was a fountain of knowledge, they thought that he was a young man with a massive future in front of him, are now disgusted by what he's become. But now, the same people who Paul looked down on and despised now call him brother and friend. The people who Paul would have crossed the street to avoid are now the closest people to him. The people who were terrified of Paul because they knew he was trying to destroy them are now praying that he comes to visit their home soon. And surely, Paul's reputation with his family, the people he grew up with, the community that he was a part of, were all impacted by his conversion. My friends, a true conversion will be noticeable. If someone's logic, their emotions, their priorities, and their purpose have all changed, people will see it. People will see the change, and sure enough, the next thing to change will be our reputation. We won't even have to try. It will happen. True life change will not be able to be contained and hidden. It will burst out of your life. The light will shine for all to see. The inner work of the Holy Spirit will show itself in different ways and in every situation you find yourself. Paul's example matters. It gives us a focus and a challenge. What was it that changed for Paul after he met Jesus? His logic, his emotions, his priorities, his purpose, and his reputation all changed because he met Jesus. Now, I, I know I'm a broken record. I know I am, and I own it. But one of the core values we have here at Word of Life is to embrace the essentials. It's the first one on our list of four. Our core values is to embrace the essentials, commit to stretch, build the community, and live on mission. But to embrace the essentials, the essentials are Bible reading, worship, prayer, and fellowship. These are the same things that have been held as essential for 2,000 years. We're certainly not reinventing the wheel. But it's amazing how many believers don't spend time in the Bible. Most often I hear that people are busy or the Bible can be daunting. My friend, take the time and read just one chapter or one verse, however long. Just get up in the morning and read just a moment. Get up 15 minutes earlier. I have never heard anyone say they fell asleep at work or had a terrible day because they woke up 15 minutes earlier. Take some time, pray and worship. What should you pray about? Whatever's on your mind. Thank Him for what you're grateful for. Ask Him to help you where you feel pressure or pain or hurt. Bring your anxieties and worries and needs to Him. How many minutes you put on the board isn't the goal. The goal is to have a meaningful time with the Lord. That time with the Lord, my friend, will change your life.
There are times when you'll get up and you'll read the Bible or you spend time praying and um, this life change that I truly believe in. There are some times where it's like a jackhammer and there's other times where it's like a mountain stream. If you want to start smashing up rocks and you get a jackhammer, it'll happen. It'll be loud. It'll be reckless, somewhat unpredictable. It's severe. But then there's the mountain stream. The mountain stream just gently washes over the stones day after day. And day after day, year after year, even decade after decade, those stones smooth out. What happens in your time with the Lord and the kind of change that God wants to do in your life in any particular moment, perhaps it's a jackhammer moment. Maybe there's something significant that needs to be rooted out of your life. Maybe there's something that is so devastating that it's the right time. We've got to address that, whatever that may be. And the Lord lovingly gets the jackhammer out. I also wrote down sticks of dynamite, but we'll stick with jackhammer. There are times where we need a jackhammer and the change and the transformation that the Lord wants to do in our heart is deep, it's severe, it's big, it's monumental, and it's a moment you won't forget. Other times, reading the scriptures, getting up in the morning, spending time in prayer, there's no jackhammer moment, there's no dynamite being let off, but it's that smoothing of the stones. Day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, the stones being smoothed out, the refining happening. Another illustration of this is we could talk about amputation and surgery. There's amputation, it's big, it's costly, it's very noticeable, it's life-changing. Surgery, I mean, it's minute, it's fine-pointing, but it's all about this transformation. Whatever analogy we use, this constant getting into the Scripture, spending time in prayer, spending time in worship, spending time around other believers, it's refining, it's building our character, it's ushering in the kind of life change that Paul had, the Holy Spirit at working all of it, bringing about these kind of changes that we see in the life of Paul. And the biggest roadblock to the change that the gospel could have in your life is you. The biggest roadblock to the change the gospel could have in my life is me. It's me holding God at arm's length. It's me thinking that I'm good enough. It's me drifting along with culture. It's me not taking the time to pray or read the Bible. But I want to learn from Paul's example. Paul didn't just meet Jesus, he got to know him. His conversion happened in a moment, but his growth and development as a follower of Jesus, it, it took a lifetime, just like everyone else. And the outcome was true discipleship and transformation. My friends, the gospel provokes change. In the passages we've read today, we can see that both Paul and Stephen believed that their faith in Jesus was worth dying for. Stephen, we read about his stoning, as tragic as it is, and we can also read from the rest of the Bible and also from history that Paul also died for his faith. And the question that I'll put to you is that if faith in Jesus is worth dying for, wouldn't you say it's worth living for? If it's worth dying for, surely it's worth living for. And one more time I will say, because I am indeed a broken record, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. If you believe, if you believe, this is not about the person next to you, it's not about the person that invited you to church today, it's not about the person that guilt trips you into coming to church every week. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the one and only Son of God, the only one that could fix the broken relationship between humanity and the Father, my friend, if you believe that, 
There is not a single good reason in the world to explain why we would ever live for him with anything less than absolutely everything. There is no logical argument to be made that if someone believes this and they decide to be wishy-washy about faith, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. What changes if we're following with Jesus with everything? What transformation happens when we respond to the gospel? From Paul's example today, our logic, our understanding, our thinking, the way we understand the world changes. Our emotions, the way we respond, the way we feel about things, what we care about, what we hurt for, what causes us to be angry, what builds compassion, what provokes compassion and emotion out of us, changes. Thirdly, our priorities, what matters more than anything. We start to gain an eternal perspective on things. Our priorities, is this going to matter in two years' time? If not, why am I spending my time worried about it today? Our priorities change. Our purpose changes. Is our purpose just hedonistic and all about me? And what about me and satisfying whatever I need? Or do we start to change our purpose and start thinking about our neighbors, start thinking about the people around us? And our reputation changes. If all this change is happening, there is no reasonable way to the people around us don't observe and don't notice, yet something's different. Something's changed. Our reputation will certainly be changed and altered because the gospel provokes change. I have a couple of questions for you. If you're in the habit of writing these down, I I hope you do and you take some time this week to think about it and perhaps pray through it. The first thing is, what are the ways you know you need to change? What are the ways you know you need to change? And secondly, how are you getting in the way of the change God wants to do in your life? How are you getting in the way of the change God wants to do in your life? James was a brother of Jesus and he wrote one of the books we have in the New Testament. This is James 4, 8. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up in honor. Take one step towards God, and He runs a universe marathon towards you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. And because of that, wash your hands, purify your hearts. In essence, change. Think differently, act differently. But there's a holdup. But your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Now I could pause right here and it would get crazy uncomfortable in this room. It's uncomfortable because we know. As believers, the Holy Spirit is active in us and the Spirit is bringing the conviction that He promised to bring. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. We know where this is true in our lives. We know where we've fallen short. We're aware of how messed up we are. Not me, of course. I'm just talking about you. But we know. But James goes on. Let there be tears for what you have done. 
Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. This, my friends, is true repentance. This is, I've just been knocked off my horse and my eyes are wide open about all the problems I'm causing. My eyes are wide open about the sin that I am a part of. And instead of brushing it off, instead of looking forward to the next time, instead of justifying it, instead of judging myself by the world standard, James writes, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Now, if this is where James stopped, it would sound like the message of Jesus is gloomy and depressing and riddled with guilt and harsh judgment. But James goes on, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. He will lift you up. He will lift us up out of the mess we've made for ourselves. He will lift us up out of the regrets, the addictions, the confusion, the anger, the insecurity, and the fear. Instead, He lifts us up to a place of honor, a place where we're free from all the reasons that we have destroyed our relationship with God, free from all of our shortcomings, free from all the pain and sin and junk and failures. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. This is an ironclad promise. Come close to God, and He will come close to you. I invite you to stand with me as I read this verse from Colossians one more time. Colossians 1, starting halfway through verse 11. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people who live in the light. For He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want to change. We want to see people come to this church and have true life change, true gospel transformation. Lord, Paul is an example to each of us of what it means to change because we've encountered you, because we've met you, because we've gotten to know you. Lord, we invite you, we welcome you to change. Lord, fix our logic, fix our emotions. Lord, set our priorities straight. Give each and every person here a renewed sense of purpose and what it means to live for you. And Lord, we fully expect our reputation to change because what you are doing in the hearts of your people. Lord, may something from this morning please register with people so that we can truly be the people you've created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, everyone, let's worship together.